after the gathering. I'm going to read for us the passage on which this teaching is based from John 15 and 16, starting in verse 26. It says, When the Counselor comes, the one I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. You also will testify because you've been with me from the beginning. I've told you these things to keep you from stumbling. They will ban you from the synagogues. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. They'll do these things because they haven't known the Father or me. But I've told you these things so that when the time comes, you will remember I told them to you. I didn't tell you these things from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going away to him who sent me. And not one of you asks me, where are you going? Yet because I've spoken these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I'm telling you the truth. It's for your benefit that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the counselor will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin, because they do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I am going to the Father, and you will no longer see me. And about judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. This is God's word. Well, we're in this series where we're uh, looking at these words. This is a teaching from Jesus, and he's sitting around a table with his disciples right before he dies, and he's trying to pass on to them all the important information that he has about who he is, about what he's done, about what he wants them to remember, and who he invites them to become. And this section of uh, this passage, or, or of the, the meal that's happening, it contains for me one of the most questionable sayings of Jesus. One of the most questionable. It's in verse 7. Jesus says this, I'm telling you the truth. It's for your benefit that I go away, because if I don't go away, the Counselor or the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And to me, this is one of those verses, I know I should believe it just because like, it's in the Bible, right? So I should be like, oh, that's good. Um, sounds good. Uh, I agree. But if I actually stop myself to think about it, I actually don't agree with the statement at all. It's not that I don't want the Holy Spirit to come, but I actually think, personally, if you're just asking me, I would be like, oh, it's actually better if Jesus just stuck around. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but these are the kinds of things I spend time in my office thinking about. <laughs> but if, and if he is God, if Jesus is actually God, which is what he says he, who he says he is, then he could. Why not? Why couldn't he just be sticking around 2,000 years later? And he would just be here. Like For me, that would be pretty great. Imagine if you had some doubts. And you're like, oh, imagine. Uh, okay, we have doubts, okay? And we could just go to him and ask him. Or if you had a friend who was like, you know what? Last night I watched a YouTube short by Atheist1985, and I'm pretty convinced that God is not real. And you could be like, totally get it. YouTube shorts are very convincing. But Jesus is actually going to be here on Thursday. You could just go and ask him yourself any of the questions you have that you have. Or you could think of it this way. If, if that doesn't convince you, imagine this. Instead of me preaching here today, Jesus could be here preaching today. Sl a slight upgrade, if you ask me. More confusing, possibly. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there, man. Right, and some of you are like, I don't know that I can get any more confusing. Okay, so why, here's the question. So why is Jesus so insistent? 
that it's better that he goes away. He says, like, I'm telling you the truth, it's for your benefit. It's all throughout this passage. Why is he so insistent that it's good that he goes away and the Spirit comes? And for me, um, it focuses, or the, the, the way that we understand this is by focusing in on the word benefit. The word benefit. It's a value-based word. And so the Greek word that's used here could be translated as benefit, or it could be translated as better, or for your advantage. It's a value-based word. And so it's, it, whatever we think is better depends on what we value. That's what I mean. So for example, people are going to go for lunch after. Who's the lunch captain again today? I forgot. David Raji. Okay, can't miss David. He will try to, he will pull you into coming to lunch, okay? So, but what you think is the best place or the better place or the most beneficial place to go for lunch is going to be dependent on who you are, right? If it's David, he's going to be like, how many people can we get there? Let's pack it out. For some of you, you might be very healthy people. So you're like, you know what we need to do? We need to go to Tractor. That's probably the most healthy place. If, if it's Peter, I don't know where he is, he's probably going to be like, you know what? Let's go to Pizza Hut. Right? <laughs> McDonald's. He's just like, how unhealthy can it possibly get? That's what he values in life. If you're someone with kids, right? You might want to be like, make sure that we have high chairs there. Make sure that we go somewhere my kids aren't going to get yelled at. If you're the lunch captain, you might think about how we have enough space that people can actually sit around and get to know each other, right? What, what's better for you depends on what you value. What's to your advantage depends on what game you think we're playing. What's beneficial depends on what you think the point of life is, the point of the good life and how you get there. So the question we need to be asking is, like, what does Jesus think about all these things? What does he think the point of our lives are and how do we get there? Why does he think that it's better that, the, that he leaves and the Spirit comes? And, and this points out for me, as I was thinking about this this week, there's two misconceptions that I have, and so I assume that many of us have, about what Jesus is trying to do, about what he thinks is better for our lives. And, and to, to understand the first one, we actually need to go backwards in the story of the Gospel of John. So we need to go back to a previous story. As I've said before, the Gospel of John is kind of like a spaghetti bowl. So it's less like a flow chart and much more like a spaghetti bowl where the, the themes just keep coming up again and again. So we have one piece, one noodle over here in this passage, and we're going to reach back and see the noodle connect to another passage in John 3. So this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he meets this guy named Nicodemus. Now, Nicodemus is, is a, a ruler of the Jewish people. He's very high up in their society, part of a group called the Pharisees, who were a very important group in Jesus' time. And he comes to Jesus at night, and he pays him a compliment. So he says to Jesus, like, you're, look, you're a really great teacher, and it seems like God's at work in your life. So he's suggesting, uh, many commentators say, that, that he is like, pay, paying tribute to Jesus. Even though he's a person like here, Jesus is probably here. He's saying, look, God is doing something really great in your life. I recognize it. And he's also saying, we should join forces together. We should work together. And so underneath that is an assumption that, that the Pharisees, and Jesus and God, they all share a same definition of better, of what's good in the world. So for the Pharisees, what was good in the world was they were a group of people who were oppressed by the Romans. And so their vision of the good life was that they would become, they would get powerful enough to overthrow the Romans and take a position of power in the world in order to create peace and to reign and rule. That was their vision of what the good life is. And so when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, he's assuming Jesus shares this vision. That's what we want. That's what God wants. That's obviously what you would want as a good Jewish rabbi. And so he comes to Jesus and pays him this compliment. But Jesus seems to be on a slightly different page than Nicodemus. This is what he says. Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
This, we may not recognize it, but this is a first century throwdown, okay? This is deep shade territory. He's saying to someone who's above him, and remember power distance culture, high power distance culture, he's saying to him, look, you're actually so blind, you can't even see what's going on. You can't even enter the kingdom of God. You can't even see it. And in fact, you're so blind that you don't just need like cataract surgery. You basically need to be reborn again. You need to be recreated. And so he's saying about this definition of better, he's like, you, had, you thought I was on with your national agenda. Actually, I'm not. That's not what I'm about at all. I'm not here to make your national dreams come true. I'm here to create a whole new humanity. That's a very, very different thing. And here's where we might be more like Nicodemus than we might want to be honest about, because we come to Jesus with all sorts of visions of what's better, of what's beneficial, of what the good life is. And we just assume, look, I'm a good guy. Jesus is a good guy. We must be on the same page about things. But that's not the way that it works. As usual, C.S. Lewis may have said this better than anyone. Listen to what he says. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. And at first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. Jesus is working along with your vision of what better is. I knew I needed some improvement in my life. Jesus is helping me improve. But he continues. But then he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Why might Nicodemus be on different pages with Jesus? Why might we be on different pages with Jesus? Because we only have the vision for our lives of becoming a little bit of a better cottage. And Jesus is building palaces. That's what he does. He's not here to make our lives a little better. He's here to recreate us into an entirely new people. That's a very different thing. And so we fundamentally misunderstand what God is up to in our lives, specifically when we suffer, which is the context for this passage. And we can't help think in those moments when things become hard for us that God could only be angry at us because he's not helping our lives get a little bit better. But that's because we have no vision for what God is actually up to. He's not helping us get a little better. He's not helping us with our life goals. He never promised that. What he wants to do in our lives, individually and corporately, is for us to become new humans. A very, very different thing. And so Nicodemus responds how I think we often do, or at least how I do. Jesus' words to him, he's shocked. And he's a little bit sarcastic with Jesus. So he says to him, how can anyone be born when he is old? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born? And most commentators say that this is a sarcastic answer, and he's saying something like this. You might say, look, look here, young buck, okay? I'm actually a pretty upstanding citizen. You may not know. I'll give you the advantage this time, or I'll, I'll be okay with it this time, but I'm doing just fine. Don't come and tell me that I need to re- be reborn. And also, that's impossible, you don't go back inside of your mother. Like, I don't know how much, how many science classes. You're probably homeschooled. Jesus didn't take a lot of science classes. <laughs> but here's what Jesus says to him. Truly, I tell you, same words from our passage. Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born of water and spirit. This is where it comes back to our passage today. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Jesus is pulling in all sorts of different references here from the Hebrew scriptures we don't have time to look at today. For our purposes, I just want to go back to our question and tie it back to our passage. If Jesus is making palaces and not cottages, then what we need is not a little help. What we need is a new birth and a completely new spirit. The Spirit is the integral ingredient into this new creation work that Jesus is doing in the world. That's how the Spirit is described all throughout the story of God. He is the one who comes and creates. Wherever he is hovering, there is a new creation potential. And that's what Jesus is on about. So we need the Spirit. So that's the first point. We, we, I think we get it wrong because we misunderstand the goal of our lives. We think we're on just to get a little bit better. And Jesus is like, no, I'm about new creation. That's why you need the Spirit. But there's a second point about why I think it's better. Jesus says it's better that he doesn't stick around. Uh, And my life, why I disagree with that. Why I think it would be better if Jesus did stick around. I think it would be better if Jesus stuck around because he would give me a lot more clarity, I believe, than the Holy Spirit would. um, About how to live the Christian life. And second of all, I feel like he'd be a much better witness to the Christian life than I would be myself. So if Jesus was here, for example, and I had a discernment question, I could just go ask him and he'd give me the answer. Like at one point in my life, I wanted to know, like, should I marry this woman or not? And I could just go to Jesus and be like, just wink three times if I'm supposed to marry, you know? And we all have those important questions, those discernment questions we would just love a straight-up answer from Jesus about. And then if people wanted to know what Christianity was all about or what Jesus was about, I could be like, look, don't look at me. And like, don't look at us. We're just, we're like a 6 out of 10. Go to Jesus. He's a 10 out of 10. Imagine how great that would be if we could just point people directly to him. But there's two problems with this. And the first is that it doesn't really seem to be how Jesus works, to your point, man. I think if I asked Jesus like a discernment question like, hey, should I take this job, Jesus? He would be like, yes, or no, or John, you are so underqualified. You did not need to come ask me this question. You know you're underqualified for this job. And so I think he would just give me a direct answer. But Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus shows this is not normally the way that it works. So Nicodemus comes and he pays Jesus a compliment and he kind of asks a few questions. And you know what Jesus basically says to him? He's like, eh. Wrong question. Wrong question. And by the way, you're blind. And you're so hopeless that you need to be reborn. That's what he says to Nicodemus. Like, imagine you went for lunch with a friend, and you were just talking about your life, and you're like, yeah, you know, some things aren't going so well in my personal life and in my work. And they're like, you know what I think the problem is? I think it's you. I think you just need, you basically, you suck. You need to get a completely new life. You need to become a completely new person, and that would probably fix your problems. Like, none of you would go for lunch with that person ever again. But that is how Jesus often talks. He's not nice all the time, or giving us direct answers. And so, I think that, that we might be slightly, or at least I might be slightly overstating how fun and direct Jesus would be uh, if he was actually around. But here's the second and deeper problem, which gets back to our question this morning. And to answer this one, like, why, why do we think it's better if Jesus sticks around? Why is he saying it's better if he goes? And here we have to go a little farther back than John 3. We need to go all the way back um, to the beginning of the Bible and to even something very fundamental about human cultures. Every culture, as I said last week, they have a vision that we receive of what the good life is. 
And if you're from several different cultures, for example, if your parents immigrated here, which many of us, that's our story, then we're sometimes stuck between those two different visions of our cultures, of what the good life is. But every culture has had this since the beginning of of time. They give us stories about why we're here, about what the world is like and what we're supposed to be doing. And early civilization, they, they talked about this vision of the good life by referring about stories about the gods. It was impossible for you to be an atheist at that time. You just couldn't. It was, it was not even a, a possibility. And so um, every society had these stories that they would share about who the gods were that, that helped people cultivate a vision of the good life. And these ideas about the good life were, were, were told in two, excuse me, in two ways. The first way is through stories. They would tell stories about what the gods were like that would help people understand the places that they, they lived what these gods were like, and what we were supposed to be doing. And the second way is that you look at the statues of those gods. So if you get in any nation, any place, any temple, you would go in and you would look at what the statue was like, and you'd be like, oh, that's what this god is like. So if the statue has like a huge you know, weapon, you'd be like, oh, this god is like a god of war, or maybe a god of protection, or something like that. And so the Bible has one of these communications, actually has many of these communications, but it starts off with one of these communications, with one of these stories. And it's a story of a very, very different God, as we saw, but it's also the story of a very different kind of statue. The word statue or idol or icon or image in Hebrew is the word selim, selim. And in Genesis 1, it says something really weird about the kind of selim that God creates or wants in the world. This is what it says. Yahweh Elohim, the God of the Bible, created humankind as his selim. In the selim of Yahweh, he created them. And in the ancient Near East, in the cultural context that Israel is swimming in, this is an absolutely crazy left turn in the story. Because God is saying, do you want to know who I am? Do you want to know what I'm like? Then look at these people. They will show you what I am like as a God. Listen to the stories that they tell. And that's how you'll know who I am. And this is an unbelievable honor that the God of the Bible, who in in the the language of the Bible is way above all the other gods, he's delegating his power and, and the way that people understand him to people. He says, you look at them and you will understand who I am. Now, if you're with us this fall, you'll remember that the people fail at this test. They start to tell the wrong stories about themselves and about their world and about their God. And they fail to be good images of him, which leads to absolute disaster. But the good news of the story is that God doesn't give up. He continues to reach his hand out to try to partner with people. And so he chooses a group of people, Israel, and he says, your stories, I will act among you, I will be among you, and your stories will be the ones that people tell to know who I am. And your shared life will be a witness to the rest of the world that there is this kind of God, this Yahweh Elohim. And he he chooses individuals, he chooses prophets, he chooses priests, he chooses kings, all these people to try to make himself known. But they never quite get it right. Because the problem is a little deeper than we like to admit. That's what Jesus is saying. We don't just need a little inspiration. We don't just need someone to yell at us. We don't just need to try a little bit harder. What we need, as we've seen Jesus already say, is new creation and new spirit. It's a very different thing. And so in the Gospel of John, it records a new creation, that God himself comes as a human, the perfect selim, the perfect image, the perfect statue. And he comes to correct and restory us about who this God is and what he's like, to change our stories. And then he also gives us an open invitation to reform as these people, 
who are Selim of God, to become people who reflect Jesus and God through following the path of Jesus, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, that we would actually be reinstated as storytellers and statues. And so when Jesus comes, or Jesus leaves, both the disciples and us were let down a little bit. Because we think, Jesus, why didn't you just stick around? But we only think that because we haven't been very good students of the story. If we had been good students of the story, we would understand that this God, God always wants to be with us. That's not the problem. That's another red thread all the way through the story. God longs to be with his people, but he's not wanting to be here as a selim, as an image. He is God, and he entrusts that to us. He wants to actually partner with us in the world. He trusts us to tell his story and be his images in the world. And that's what it's saying over and over again in our passage. Let's take a look at a few passages here. Verse 26, it says, When the Counselor comes, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will testify about me. And so the Spirit will just speak. It will be, in the Bible it says sometimes the Spirit is just hovering around. And so there will just be random people that kind of hear the voice of God without kind of human interaction. But then listen to what it says next. It says, the counselor will testify about me, but he says to the disciples, you will also testify. This is the vision that God, and through his spirit, wants to partner with us to make him known in the world, to share his story. Chapter 16, verse 8 says it this way, "When, when the spirit comes, he will convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And here we start to get a little antsy, Maybe the first thing that comes to mind is like some dude on Granville yelling at people that they're going to hell. But if you read on, you'll actually see the way that people are convicted of their sin, which in the context of this is empire. The way that people are convicted of empire. The way that they're convicted of righteousness, which here means injustice. The way that they're convicted of judgment, which here means that Satan is no longer in power. The way that that happens is twofold. Number one is through the sharing of the story of Jesus and then the people who live the story of Jesus, the people who are statues. It's a people who are living as dissidents of empire, citizens of a different kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. It's a people who are living lives of justice and relational rightness. And it's people who are freed from the power of the dark Lord and have given their allegiance to Jesus. It's, it's God's people as new creations alive in the Spirit, living in the world that the Spirit uses to convict. That's how God wants to work. It's how he's always wanted to work, and it's how he wants to work through us. Verse 12 says it this way. Jesus says, I still have many things to tell you, but you can't bear them now. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Why is it better that Jesus goes away? It's so that the Spirit can guide us throughout all places, throughout all times, throughout history, guide the church to learn how to be faithful storytellers and statues in the moments and the times and the places where we live, which includes here in Vancouver in 2024. So why is it better that Jesus goes away? It's so that he can accomplish his eternal purposes that he's always had which is that we become new human beings. We're recreated by the power of his spirit. We become new people that he can partner with, as this passage says, so that he can be glorified. That's why it's good news that Jesus leaves and leaves us the spirit. It's, this is what he wants to do in your life, to recreate you and partner with you, and that's what he wants to do with us as a community of people, recreate us and partner with us. 
Now, what does this mean for us today? How can we actually partner with God's Spirit? If this is the backstory, what's the practical? How do we actually do this? And in many ways, you could say that this is really what the New Testament authors are trying to tell us, especially in the letters. They write all these letters to all these different places to say, here's how you can partner with the Spirit. Here's how you can be faithful storytellers and statues in your moments and in your time. And so it's an invitation for us to continue to read the story, to know the story, but also to listen to the Spirit. But for today, I want to try to stick to the context of this passage. And in doing so, I want to remind us that the context of this passage and listening to the Spirit, becoming new humans, is all in and around suffering. It's all in and around suffering. Jesus said, we saw it last week, he says, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you. If the world persecuted me, it's going to persecute you. And then he says something very similar in this passage. He tells them how it's going to happen. He's like, they will ban you from the synagogues. And in fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering service to God. That suffering will be brought on these disciples because they've allowed their vision of what the good life is, their, their, their versions of better, of what's beneficial, of what's to their advantage, be reshaped by Jesus. And so suffering will come upon them. They're not just trying to stay out of trouble. They're trying to actively partner with Jesus to storytell in the world the story of Jesus. And so suffering will come upon them. And so Jesus says to these disciples in verse 1, he says, I've told you these things. I've told you that you will suffer in order to keep you from stumbling. In order to keep you from stumbling. The Greek word here for stumbling is actually the word scandalizo. Scandalizo. It's a fun one to bring out at parties. Um, And we get our word scandalized from this. Jesus is basically saying to them, when suffering comes, I don't want you to be scandalized by it. Don't let these hard things derail you. And so that's the first invitation for us, is to remind ourselves that this is normal and to grab with two hands this vision of the good life that Jesus has for us, that we are becoming new human beings that can partner with the living God. And so when these difficulties come into our lives, whether they're persecution from the outside, or whether they're just the loss of our dreams that come when we take Jesus' vision of what's better. Jesus says, don't be surprised. And in fact, you can even learn from these times to reframe your vision of what the good life is, that that these difficulties that come into your life might actually work out as some sort of gymnasium where God is training us to become new, to let go of, of these small things that we worship and that we long for in order to have a kingdom vision of what it means to be human. Again, C.S. Lewis translates this really well. He says it this way, We must not be surprised when we're in for a rough time. When a man... Sorry, he uses gendered language here. When a man turns to Christ and seems to be getting on pretty well, in the sense that some of his bad habits are now corrected, he often feels that it would be natural if things went fairly smoothly. I think this is 100% the way we think about the Christian life. I became a Christian. I knew I had some things to work on. I worked on them, but now life should be fairly smooth. But when troubles come along, illness, money troubles, new kinds of temptation, Vancouver rent prices, he is disappointed. These things, he feels, might have been necessary to rouse him and make him repent in his bad old days, but why now? It's because God is forcing him on or up to a higher level, putting him into situations where he'll have to be very much braver or more patient or more loving than he ever dreamed of being before. It seems to us all unnecessary, but that is because we have not yet had the slightest notion of the tremendous thing he means to make of us. God is not 
interested in making us slightly better cottages. He's making a palace. He wants you to be a statue of him, a storyteller of him in the world. He entrusts that great honor and privilege to us. And so when we have this vision of what God is doing, then we won't be as scandalized when hard things come our way. It doesn't mean we need to love them or to yearn for them. We don't have to turn into masochists overnight. But we can learn to restore these difficult things in our lives as places where we can actively meet the risen Jesus and where he's doing this work of creating us into palaces. So there's an invitation in this passage for us today to not be scandalized, to learn to restory our lives so that the hard things in life don't scandalize us. But there's one more invitation that I want to extend. Um, As I've been preaching through this series, there's been two, well, this passage, there's been two things that have been difficult. One, as I've said, is the spaghetti nature of this, these passages. So there's always 50 million things going on, and I want to talk about them for 50 million hours. And that wouldn't be good for anybody. But in this specific text, section of text, one of the things that I've struggled with is this language of persecution. So persecution is where a a group of people or a nation, a group in power, actively works against and works to harm another group of people. So in the context of this passage, it's talking about people doing that that to Christians. That there's a group in power that's working against Christians to harm them and even kill them. That's the reality of Jesus' time. He literally died. He didn't just get, like, canceled. He literally died because he went and, and um, lived in this new vision of what it means to be human. And that was the reality for the disciples, too. Of the 11 of them left at the table with Jesus, 10 of them would die gruesome deaths, the deaths of martyrs. They would give their lives. And that's been a reality for Christians throughout history, and it's still a reality for people all over the world today. Not, I'm not trying to make it crazy, but there are many Christians that are still suffering. But the thing is, it's not a reality for us at Reality Church in 2024 in Vancouver. We are not probably going to have to give our lives for Jesus in the same way that he's talking about with the disciples here. And there's some really positives to this, right? There's some great things about it. Number one, we're going to live, right? That's okay. Um, And so if you, I don't want to downplay it, because if you out yourself as a Christian, there, there may be some consequences. Like you might lose a few friends, Or, like, realistically, you might get passed over for a promotion or something like that. Like, that's a real possibility in our world. And some Christians want to highlight this and really play it up and say, like, oh, it's so hard to be a Christian today. But often I find when I dig into these, like, persecutions, they're not exactly what Jesus is referring to. Um, Oftentimes, people are just yearning for a Christian past that they see as kind of idyllic, but it was only idyllic for some people, if you know what I'm saying. Um, And so that's not what persecution is. Or sometimes people think persecution, they think something is persecution, but they just don't understand how the internet works. Um, Like, for example, they post something on Facebook and not everyone likes it, and they're like, it's persecution! I'm like, no, that's how the internet works. That's why God created the internet. And so that people can tell you they don't like your stuff. That has nothing to do with you being a Christian at all. It's, and also, you posted a picture of Jesus wearing a MAGA hat. So I'm super glad that not everyone agreed with that. It's not persecution. But the point is that we're not going to deal with this mass persecution that Jesus is talking about at the same level. Like, if you come forward for communion today, you are not going to die tomorrow. You're not going to get fed to the lions, which was a real concern in Jesus' moment in history. 
And so maybe in the short history of our country, it's not the best time to be a Christian. I can accept that. Maybe Christianity, we're getting hated a little bit more. Totally true. But in the grand scheme of the history of the world, it's a pretty good time to be a Christian. And we're definitely not going to deal with the things Jesus is talking about. On the other hand, we have a very different danger in this moment. And that's the danger of becoming very complacent then as Christians. That we can believe without consequence, so our belief has no consequence. And we miss out on the deep assessment that would need to happen. If, if literally, if you were to get baptized, you would be killed and your family members could be killed. That's a very different way that you enter into baptism rather than like, oh, it's kind of cold in the tank, right? There's a different level of assessment that happens there. We miss out on the refining that can come when people are persecuted and suffer because of Jesus. And we miss out on this deep joy and love that's talked about in this passage that comes from meeting our suffering Savior in places of deep suffering. So what do we do when suffering is not forced upon us? That's just not a reality of our world. And there's pros and cons to that. I don't want to make it sound like it's just great where people are suffering. Um, it's just the reality of our world. What do we do when suffering is not forced upon us? What do we do when there's nothing pushing us to form us in this way as the people of God? And here's where we might be able to learn a little bit from the early church. So as Jesus warned, the disciples, like I said, were persecuted. And people were persecuted really hard for about 300 years. There were many people who died for their faith. They call this red martyrdom. They gave their blood. They gave their life. There were many, many more who were persecuted for their faith. They lost jobs, they lost houses, they lost a lot of other things. They had to flee from the persecution. They call this white martyrdom. You don't give your life, but you're still really, really impacted. And all of that suffering, that those people suffering, just a small group of people, did what Jesus predicted. The Holy Spirit convicted through their lives, and something crazy happened. About 300 years later, there were so many Christians that Christianity actually became the national religion of Rome that it was legalized and became the local religion. And it was unthinkable in Jesus' time because of these people who were persecuted. And, and many Christians celebrated, like, hey, we're not going to die anymore. That's a pretty good reason to celebrate. But then over time, other people started to lament because they started to realize they don't want to go back to a time where they were going to get fed to the lions or persecuted. Like, that wasn't fun. But they also realized without this persecution in their lives that there was something anemic about their faith that there were some muscles that weren't being developed, that the fruit of their lives individually and corporately wasn't as beautiful and bold as it was before, and that they also became very weak in their witness to the watching world. And so what they did is they created another category of what they called martyrdom. And it has different names throughout history, but one of the earliest accounts calls it green martyrdom. Green martyrdom. And green martyrdom describes a group of people who aren't being oppressed from the outside. There's nothing forcing them to you know, be persecuted or take these things seriously. So what they do is they reverse the flow. They move towards difficulty on purpose. And so people would leave Rome, for example, and go out to the desert and they establish monasteries. Places where life would become more difficult, more simple. Where they weren't um, uh, seduced by the fat of Rome, by just becoming lazy. And they created rules of life. They did practices. This is where the spiritual discipline language comes from. Practices of service. Practices of generosity. When people aren't going to come take everything you own, you have to be uh, attentive to give some of what you have. Practices of fasting, pr pr um, pilgrimages, silence and solitude. All of these practices come from that time. 
And they said, we don't want to grow fat and anemic. So we have to move ourselves in discipline to become, become fit for the kingdom of God. And so this group, in short, they had to switch the question that they were asking. They had to stop asking the question, which they'd asked for hundreds of years, where is the suffering coming from? Where is the persecution coming from? And they had to start asking a different kind of question, which is, how can I sacrifice? How can I give of myself? How, it's a reactive question. How am I going to suffer? How am I going to sacrifice is a proactive question. What is God asking me to move into? And I think this is a great challenge and invitation for us as well. When we live in this wonderful time where we're not experiencing persecution. Which doesn't mean you're not going to have hardship in your life. If Jesus and C.S. Lewis agree on something, it's going to happen. Okay, And they both say hardship in our lives, it's going to happen. And for those things, there's an opportunity for a shift in perspective for each one of us. That Jesus isn't absent in those times, maybe, but that maybe he's right there in those moments of suffering. That the Spirit isn't gone, but actually he's ministering to us in those places. That we are becoming new human beings. So to restory those times of suffering, which will come in all of our lives, and I know some of, them, some of us are going through that right now. But there are also times where the Spirit, who ministers to us, who wants us to become new humans, doesn't bring something bad on us, but asks us to let go of something good in order that we could pursue something better, more beneficial to our advantage alongside the kingdom of God so that we could become people who look like Jesus, not through suffering, but through sacrifice. And I don't know what God is calling you to in this room, in sacrifice. I can't stand up here and say, even for a small group of people like this, where God is calling us all to sacrifice. That's cult-like behavior. And I don't want to do that. But some of you do know where God is calling you. Some of you have a very clear idea in your life of where the Spirit is tapping away to let go of something good in order that you could pursue the best. There's an idea of your life where the Spirit has been speaking the words of Jesus to you, and my invitation is to lean into those spaces. As Dan, Dan shared this last week in Gospel Story, it was Storyteller it was a beautiful example of God just calling him to pray, to give up a few things in his life that he might join with the Spirit in prayer. I don't know what God is saying to you, what the Spirit is saying to you, but where are those spaces? And would you lean in? Would you accept them? So so some of us do know where God is calling us. And for the rest of us, you know, we're in this wonderful time called Lent, where what you do is you take time to sacrifice. You put yourself into a place where you let go of something in order to say yes to something else. I've been practicing a little bit of fasting, which I haven't been able to do for a while because of my health. But I've started practicing it again, and I'm just reminded by saying no to food, I feel hungry. And like there's physical noises that you know accompany that hunger that remind me, they're like prayer bells. That I start to pray, Oh God, would I hunger for you like that? I want to be hungry like that for God. I truly do. And my body knows how to be hungry like that for food. Sometimes I forget how to be hungry like that for God. Fasting helps me. And so we're two weeks into Lent. You know, reality, we like to be a little bit late. That's just how we are. We say we start at 10. We're lucky if we start at 10, 10. You're a little late to Lent. No worries. Maybe there's a practice you can join with us in, in this next season leading up to Easter, where you say yes to something that God is calling you to. Come to prayer at the ungodly hour of 645 to come and and say yes to God, to sacrifice. Sacrifice a little sleep. Whatever it is, come join us and join God in his bigger vision work that he's doing 
in your life. And here's the great hope, and I'm going to end here. When we stop searching for suffering, which I think is just the wrong direction for us right now, I know that there's lots of Christians who want to do that, and I'm not saying the Christian life isn't getting harder. Please hear me. But when we stop searching for suffering or we stop avoiding any kind of sacrifice, that's the Vancouver dream, that our lives would become comfortable and easy. When we stop doing those two things and we learn to say yes to the Spirit, we become more like Jesus. I do believe we meet Jesus, but here's the last thing I want to say. We also become witnesses to our city. That there might be a bigger vision out there than just our comfort, than just little cottages. You know, if you're like me, you probably have people that you're actively praying for, maybe family members, friends, neighbors, and you want God to work in their lives. You may not use this language, but for the language from the passage, would be like, Spirit, convict them. Oh, please show them that you are true, that you are alive. Bring them to the ends of their stories. And if they're going through hard times, you might be like, oh, this hard time, I hope that it doesn't end you, but that it turns you towards Jesus. And we pray for these things, and we hope for these things, and that's so great. I don't want you to do it less. In fact, I love it if you would do it more. But this passage should remind us that the primary way that God wants to open people up to the convicting work of his spirit is through us as statues and through us as storytellers, that we become a group of people who is very attentive to what the Spirit is doing in our lives, so that we become a people who honor those around us who God is calling to suffer in this season, and we support them, and we honor them as a community of suffering, and we're people who become very quick and attentive to what the Spirit is saying, to move into places of sacrifice. And then when non-Christians or people who are wondering about faith, when they hear about it and hear about us, and when they come in here, they won't feel like they're the only ones being asked to sacrifice something. They will see a group of people who are well-versed in that, who are actively giving things up with joy and with hope because we're being recreated and we can invite people into that. And that might be the best witness that we have in our city today, that our shared life might make room to tell our shared story of a God who came and gave his life. Not that we could become comfortable, but that we could become new. Let's pray to close. God, we do um, want to heed your words. And in one hand, I'm so grateful that we live in a place where um, I'm not worried as we leave this place that uh, we will face some sort of violence um, we pray for those around the world who that is their, tr- their, their story, and we ask that you would minister to them, that you would care for them, that you would protect them, protect their witness and their story. Give them perseverance for the task that they have ahead. For those of us who stand in a very different place, um, we thank you for the wonder of this, this country and the uh, safeties and the peace that we do have, but we ask that that wouldn't help us to grow uh, lazy or complacent in our faith. Instead, we ask that you would help us to accept this new vision that you have, that we are being recreated as your people, and that we would move towards sacrifice where you're calling us. So Spirit, even in this time, as we respond, we pray that you would guide us, that you would speak, that you would minister. And we just invite you um, to call us to those places of sacrifice, and may we be individuals in a community who are willing to go there with you, that we might become statues and storytellers of Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.